The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Let's take our Bibles now and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2 again today. 1 Timothy chapter 2. And uh, we'll pick up reading again uh, verse 8 down to verse 15. And uh, in our study of this section of the epistle, our focus today will be on verses 9 and 10. So follow as I read First uh, Timothy 2, verses 8 to 15. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful today for the privilege we have once again of opening up your holy word, and we pray that we would understand it correctly and that you would give us uh, hearts to embrace the teaching of your word and to live out the things that you instruct us to do as your people, that we would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Grant us the help of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We, we can't say enough, of course, that the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ is by grace alone. We are saved by grace through faith. The empty hand of faith receiving the free gift of a Savior provided to us by God in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But it's also important that we underscore and that we emphasize that the grace that rescues us from the guilt and eternal ruin of our sins also begins to save us from the power of sin over our lives. That same grace, as Paul tells us in Titus 2 verse 12, teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. In other words, the grace that justifies us also sanctifies us. The salvation Christ gives affects every part of our lives, even down to the nitty-gritty details of practical godliness. As we're reminded of this in the passage that we return to today as we return to our study of Paul's first epistle 
to Timothy. Now, last week, you may remember that we moved to a new section of this epistle that begins in verse 8, and that verse serves as both a conclusion to the teaching on prayer that preceded it, and also as an introduction to the teaching on sexual distinctions and role relationships between men and women in the church. Paul speaks to the men in verse 8 about their duty with respect to prayer, and that was our focus last week. Then he speaks to the women about proper attire in the church, verses 9 to 10, which will be our focus this week. He says, oh boy. And then he addresses the distinctive roles of men and women in the church, verses 11 to 15, which will begin to take up, God willing, next week. According to Scripture, just emphasize again, as we did last week, that according to God's word, men and women are both created in the image of God. Very important. Both have equal value. Both have equal worth before God. Both are to be treated with love, respect, and fairness. Also, both men and women share together in the creation mandate to subdue the earth and to exercise dominion over God's creation. And both are equal recipients of the blessings of salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. This is very important. We must never forget these things, but at the same time, men and women are different. God never intended them to be exactly the same, and those differences are intended to complement one another and to contribute to the beauty of this wonderful world of variety that God has made. There are physical, biological, and hormonal uh, differences between men and women, and there are also distinctions that God has ordained in terms of their roles and functions in the home and in the church. Therefore, it should not surprise us to sometimes find in the Bible special instructions especially for men and special instructions especially for women, as we do in the passage that I just read and you're hearing this morning. Now, last week we considered again what Paul says to the men in the church in verse 8. Today we began to look at what he says to the women, focusing today on verses 9 to 10, where he addresses the manner in which women dress in the church. And we see, as we see in the parallel passage uh, in 1 Peter 3, where he addresses this, that really this applies to public settings in general. So here we go. Uh, with such a text before us, I'm sure some of you are glad that you're not the pastor. <laughs> And uh, you don't have to preach on this. And I understand that feeling. But, but this is one of the wonderful things about expository preaching, verse by verse, passage by passage, preaching through portions and books of the Bible. It makes it, uh, we, come, we come up against texts like this. It makes it harder to just skip things like this. It forces you to deal with passages. It can be all too easy to ignore, and as you do, you often find a great richness and blessing that you may have never expected. And may that be the case today as we consider verses 9 to 10, 1 Timothy chapter 2. So as we begin to open up this, this passage, notice with me first of all the subject address. The subject address, verse 9. That's, is that my breath I'm hearing? I keep hearing this noise constantly all the time. Is so I'm not I'm not going crazy. I really am hearing this. Okay, all right. Uh, is that better? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. 
Something's going on with the mic. I, I don't know what it is, but. Huh? What? Maybe I should just turn it off and use this mic. Does this mic work? I'm just going to turn this one off. It's annoying. Maybe it's not annoying you, but it's annoying me, so I'm going to take it off. Well, if I can, I'm going to take it off. Oh, I'm going to have to take my jacket off. Sorry about this. I'm sure the Apostle Paul never had to do this. All right, can you hear me okay with this other mic? All right, good. All right, so as we begin to take this up, notice, well, let's just leave this off while we're at it. <laughs> you guys know it's going to come off anyhow, right? So, all right, so notice with me, first of all, the subject addressed, verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves. So the subject addressed is the Christian woman's adorning of herself. And what we have here in the Greek text is actually an infinitive verb, to adorn. The women are to adorn themselves. And this infinitive, this verb, is really the key word of this whole statement, this whole section. It governs each of the main parts of the sentence all the way down through verse 10. The directive is that women are to adorn themselves and then the rest of what Paul says is simply an explanation or a description of how they are to do this, how they are to adorn themselves. So what does this mean to adorn? Well, we have a form of the verb cosmeo, and you can probably guess what word we get from that. Cosmetic, cosmeo, uh, the root meaning of which has to do with the idea of ordering or putting into order, and therefore it's used to convey the concept of arranging things in an orderly and attractive manner, to adorn or to decorate or to make beautiful and attractive. It means more than simply dress oneself or to dress modestly, as the NIV translates it. It carries the idea of arranging in an orderly, attractive, and beautiful manner. Now, let me show you some examples. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21, verse 5. To show you some of many examples we could look at of this word as it's used in the New Testament. Now here in this passage in Luke 21, Jesus is in the temple and he's watching the people cast their gifts into the treasury and he's just commended the, the uh, poor widow who gave all that she had. And then in verse 5, someone makes a comment about the beauty of the temple itself and there we see our word. Then as some spoke of the temple how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said. And the idea here is that the temple was decorated and made attractive by these beautiful stones and donations. And there we see the word we have in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Turn over to the book of the Revelation, chapter 21. Uh, picking up with verse 2, look at verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned, and there's our word, 
adorned for her husband. So do you see how the word is used here? Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. As a bride who has carefully arranged herself and her clothing in an orderly and attractive manner so as to, to appear beautiful to her husband. We see the same word used down in this same chapter, down in verse uh, 19. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. And then he goes on to name some of these precious stones. So I hope you have a good feel now as we turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 for the meaning of this word. It, its meaning, particularly as it's used here, of female appearance is to make attractive or to beautify. So this is the subject addressed in this passage. Now Paul goes on now to tell us the manner in which a woman is to adorn herself. And first we have what is required stated in a general way in the rest of verse 9. And then we have 9a. And then we have uh, some specific applications of what is required in verse 9b and verse 10. So we have stated in a general way, then some specific applications. So from the subject address, which is a woman's adorning of herself, a woman's adornment, Let's consider now what is required as stated in general. Verse 9. The women are to adorn themselves, Paul says, in modest apparel with propriety and moderation. And probably the best way, I think, to open this up is simply to define these various words that Paul uses to describe this. First, the word apparel. That's simple. He's speaking about a woman's clothes, the way she dresses. Secondly, what's the meaning of the word translated modest? Women are to adorn themselves in modest apparel. Well, our English word modest is an okay translation, but it's not really the best. It really misses the emphasis, the real emphasis here. Paul addresses the issue of modesty as we think of it later on in this statement. But the word he uses here is a word that comes from the same root word as the word translated adorn. You remember to adorn is from the verb cosmeo. Well, here we have a form of the adjective, cosmios. There's actually something of a play on words here. You can, you can see that, cosmeo, cosmios. Literally, literally, Paul says this, In like manner, I want the women to adorn themselves in adorning apparel. You see, Paul is purposefully using two words that start with the same letters that come from a common root, and convey basically the same idea. So a more precise translation would be, women are to adorn themselves in adorning apparel. That's actually what Paul says here. Women in the context of public gatherings are to adorn themselves in becoming apparel, or in orderly, attractive, well-arranged apparel. And then thirdly, what about the word translated, the words translated propriety in moderation? The women are to adorn themselves in adorning apparel with propriety and moderation. Well, the word translated propriety does carry with it the idea of modesty. It's a word that refers to a sense of holy shame and reserve. In fact, the old King James uh, translates it shamefacedness. Think of blushing. It's interesting that the only other place this word is found in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 where we read, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be broken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence, there's our, our word, and godly fear, with propriety, 
with modesty, with a holy modesty that shrinks back from overstepping the bounds of that proper reserve that is fitting for a sinful creature of the dust in the presence of a holy God. Well, that's the same word Paul uses here in our text. He uses it here to refer to clothing that reflects a holy reserve and modesty. Clothing that seeks to avoid every hint of the shame that's attached to sexual promiscuity and sexual looseness. It's the opposite of a disposition so common today, which delights in exposing oneself. It's the opposite of what you see today in so many women and young ladies who unashamedly and even pridefully display their nakedness or their sparsely dressed bodies before the public eye, as those spoken of in Philippians 3.19, whose glory is their shame. As I trust we all know, God in his word condemns all sexual activity outside of the one man, one woman marriage relationship. And he also condemns lustful looking. Jesus said, whoever looks on a woman to lust for the purpose of lusting after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart, Matthew 5.28. But listen to me, young ladies. Along with lustful looking, God's word also condemns deliberately seeking to provoke lustful looking by immodest dress. Proverbs chapter 7 speaks of the loose woman who desires to seduce and to arouse sexual lust in a young man, and it describes her as a woman who dresses in the attire of a harlot. Now, he's not speaking in Proverbs 7 of an actual harlot, but of a woman who dresses like one. And he's warning his young sons that the way a woman dresses is often an indication of the state of her heart. It's often an indication of the evil desires, the immoral condition of her heart. Now, I know that the Bible doesn't give detailed measurements and so on. And someone, when you start talking about this, immediately someone may be thinking, well, Pastor, where exactly does a Christian woman draw the line between that which is pleasant and attractive and in good taste and that which is immodest? Well, again, the Bible doesn't draw a detailed line. It simply assumes that in most cases, every woman who is a true Christian and therefore desires to obey Christ in everything and to live for his glory, God's word assumes that such a woman will normally have enough good sense to know where that line is in a given situation, and she won't be seeking to walk as close to that line as she possibly can. But at the same time, I think especially young ladies that have been brought up in a Christian home can sometimes be very naive about this. And if you're unsure about something, you might wear one of the best things you can do is ask your husband, or if you're not married, ask your father. That is, of course, if your husband uh, or your father is a godly man who would even care one way or another. As a man, your husband or your father will know if something is too revealing or provocative or suggestive, and you ought to seek his advice. My daughters often do that, and I can remember my sister, well, they're not now, they're, they're, they've moved out, they're married now, but they often did that. And I remember my sisters doing that with my father, and sometimes something was bought. It had to be approved by dad first before they could wear it. And they might even have to take it back, which sometimes happened. And fathers, you need to embrace it as your responsibility to help 
and to guard your daughters in this area. I have to confess that I am sometimes totally, completely shocked at the way some professing Christian young women dress in public. And I'm even more shocked that their dads would ever let their daughter dress that way in public. Often, a lot of the blame lies with a dad who has checked out or wimped out on his responsibility to lead his family like he should. Now, dads and pastors like me need to be fair. We shouldn't expect women to dress like they lived in the 50s or in Victorian England. And other women need to be fair as well to other women. You know, we don't want to be the the fashion police going around the church with a measuring stick, measuring everybody's clothes and telling everybody how they ought to dress all the time. What, what an oppressive environment that would be to live in. I don't want it to be that way. But dear ladies, you can still be stylish without being raunchy. And a lot of what we see today, I don't know how better to describe it than it's just raunchy. But then the next word is translated moderation. It's from a Greek word that <clears throat> really combines two ideas or concepts in the one thought, that of soundness of mind and self-control, clothing that reflects the exercise of sound judgment and self-control. So when you put these two words together, the scripture is calling women to adorn themselves in the church and in public settings in a manner that is marked by reserve, and sound judgment by a holy modesty and a holy moderation. So we have the subject of dress, a woman's adornment, particularly in the way she dresses herself. We have what is required, generally stated, in adoring, adorning apparel with modesty and moderation. And now Paul follows thirdly with some specific applications of what is required, some specific applications. We have both a negative application and we have a positive application. So notice, first of all, the negative. Women are to adorn themselves in becoming apparel with holy modesty and moderation. And what does this mean on a practical level? Well, it means negatively, as stated at the end of verse 9, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. Now, as many of you know, uh, these words have sometimes caused the great deal of confusion among Christians. Therefore, let me begin by explaining what Paul does not mean here. There have been those who have interpreted this to be an absolute prohibition against Christian women cutting or braiding their hair, wearing any jewelry whatsoever of gold or pearls or precious stones, or of dressing themselves in anything other than drab, plain, cheap clothing. There are even denominations or certain Christian groups who are noted for interpreting this in that way. And the women are taught that they're never to wear jewelry, never to wear makeup, and they're only to dress in a very plain and drab manner. Now, it can easily be demonstrated that this is not what Paul is teaching when we consider this text in the light of the rest of Scripture. And that's a very, very, by the way, that's a very important principle of biblical interpretation that every Christian needs to grasp, that every individual text of Scripture must be interpreted consistently with the overall teaching of Scripture as a whole on that particular subject and topic because the Bible is the Word of God. It does not contradict itself. 
And if you, you need to grasp that principle, otherwise you're going to be in trouble at times in your reading of the Bible. So how do we understand this in light of the teaching of the rest of Scripture? What do we see in Scripture? Well, consider first that throughout the Old Testament, we have passages which clearly sanction the moderate wearing of jewelry and the concern for maintaining a nice, neat outward appearance and indeed an attractive outward appearance. Solomon in Ecclesiastes, while exhorting those who know God to be content and to enjoy the simple things of life, eating your bread with joy and so on, also says, let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil, which in his time in which he's speaking, in other words, maintain a nice, clean, well-kept appearance. We read in Genesis 24 when Abraham sent his servant back to his homeland to find a wife for Isaac that upon finding her, he presented her with gifts of gold and silver jewelry and clothing. Beautiful jewelry and clothing that was fitting for such a joyous occasion. And he didn't give it to her merely to look at, but to wear. In Exodus 3.22, God told Moses that one of the blessings he would give to his people when they departed from Egypt is that they would not leave empty-handed. But he said, Every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Clearly, God did not consider it sinful for his people to wear jewels of gold and silver and nice clothing. And there are other examples in the Old Testament. We see the same thing in the New Testament. For example, in the parable of the prodigal son is told by Christ himself. In the celebration, remember, of the prodigal's return to his home, he was clothed with what is called the best robe and a ring was placed on his finger. And our Lord doesn't condemn this. The whole assumption there is that this was something, this was wonderful and good and appropriate. In the Sermon on the Mount, when addressing the right manner in which we are to fast and pray in times of unusual need and spiritual distress, Jesus exhorts us to maintain a well-kept outward appearance and not to be like the Pharisees who drew attention to themselves when they fasted by deliberately looking dreary and drab. You see, drawing attention to yourself by a drab appearance in the name of godliness can be just as much a manifestation of pride as being immodest and overly extravagant. And I would add, it's interesting to note that in the Gospels it appears that the Lord Jesus himself was dressed in the basic fashions common to that day and culture. Though he didn't dress in a pompous, extravagant way, there's no indication that he was weird, that he stuck out as someone who dressed in a very strange, unusual way that was out of joint with the society and culture of that time. No. In fact, at his crucifixion, the Roman soldiers considered his woven coat to be of such value that they decided to cast lots for it rather than to divide it in pieces between themselves. But one other evidence that our text is not an absolute prohibition of hairstyling and jewelry and so on, is a close examination of the text itself, in that together with what is known about the practices of some women in Ephesus and the Greek culture in those days. Paul speaks of braided hair together with gold or pearls or costly clothing, which seems to suggest the idea of the combination of these things, an over-extravagance, something that is 
overdone and over the top. And here's where it helps us to know something about Hellenistic society, Greek society in those days. Dr. James Hurley is helpful here, quoting him. The sculpture and literature of the period make it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven or piled high like towers and decorated with gems and or gold and or pearls. The courtesans, which is a fancy word for prostitutes, the prostitutes wore their hair in numerous small pendant braids with gold droplets or pearls or gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. Another pointing, as pointed out, commenting on the times, the conjunction of a fancy hairstyle with fancy jewelry was a sign of vanity. Some women spent hours fixing their hair and spangling their coiffures with gems. One ancient sculptor depicts a wealthy lady in the salon pampered by four attendants. No doubt this was something quite common in a city like Ephesus where Timothy is serving, and it must have been a great temptation to some of the women in the church, for we know that some of the women in the church in Ephesus were wealthy, since Paul later is going to address those in the church who are rich, chapter 6, verse 17 to 19. But this kind of excessiveness and this over-extravagance was not only characteristic of the wealthy in Ephesus, but together with sexually suggestive immodesty, this was also one of the characteristics of prostitutes. And prostitution was rampant in Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was considered home to the goddess Artemis. And as Riken in his commentary points out, it was a common thing to see the temple prostitutes loitering near the pillars of her temple. And no doubt uh, the people in the church had seen this. They lived in that world. And in part, Paul, what Paul is doing here, he's telling women not to come to church dressed like a prostitute. So I trust you see, brothers and sisters, that it's an elaborate, extravagant, expensive use of braids and gold and pearls and an undue focus on such things that Paul is condemning. Notice all the, also the reference to Costly clothing affirms this. You see, what we have here is not an absolute prohibition, but it's what can be called a relative prohibition. And that's a device that we see from time to time in Scripture for contrasting something that's of great primary importance with something of very little importance in comparison. For example, God said through the prophet Hosea, in Hosea 6.6, 6, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In the knowledge of God, more than burnt offerings. And Jesus makes reference to that passage in Matthew 9.13 when addressing the Pharisees. Now, was Hosea, was our Lord saying that God in an absolute sense did not require sacrifices as part of old covenant worship? No, of course not. But the emphasis is that in comparison to the inward graces of true spiritual religion, and in this case, the grace of mercy, the outward ceremony of sacrifices was of much less importance. And in fact, the outward ceremonies of worship are meaningless and useless where there is no grace in the heart. Another example, in John 6, 27, remember the multitudes were following Jesus around after he fed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish? 
And they, but they were simply following him because they wanted more food. They wanted more bread, not for spiritual reasons. And then Jesus turned and said to them, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. Now, did Jesus mean that they were literally to stop working to provide for their physical needs? No, of course not. His point was that they should be more concerned, much more concerned, about their spiritual needs and their need of the salvation only he can give. Now, that's the same kind of thing we have here in our text. We have the same kind of comparison. The end of verse 9, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, verse 10, but, and here's the comparison, but, which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. And this brings us now to the positive application. We have a general statement of what is required. Women are to adorn themselves in adorning apparel. They are to beautify and to make themselves attractive and well-arranged. And they are to do so with modesty, avoiding every suggestion of sexual looseness. And they are to do so with moderation, which means negatively that you're not to focus on showing off with a kind of vain display of yourself by an overly extravagant attention to elaborate hairdos and gold and pearls and luxurious clothing. No, but instead now, positively, verse 10, you are to focus on the adorning, the attractiveness of a life of godliness that is marked by good works. Good works. The kind of good works we'll see later that Paul describes in this epistle in chapter 5 when he speaks about the good works that, that should mark a godly woman. He mentions in chapter 5 bringing up children, showing hospitality. Washing the saints' saints' feet, relieving the afflicted, devoting herself to every good work, 1 Timothy 5.10. These are what what is called God's beauty tips for women. You see, it's the desire to appear beautiful to others and to have their respect and admiration. That's what tends to drive women to the extremes that Paul alludes to in the second half of verse 9. And this desire to appear beautiful and attractive in and of itself is not sinful. Paul tells women to adorn themselves in adorning apparel. But you see, this desire to appear beautiful to others can become sinful when it causes a woman to dress immodestly or when it causes her to expend lavish amounts of money and time on her appearance and dress and to give more attention to her looks than to her relationship to Christ and the cultivation of godly character and to spend more time and money on her clothes and hair and jewelry than she does on good works. This is not the way to be truly attractive to God or to any man who is worth attracting. No, the way to be more attractive is not by tighter clothes and showing more skin but by a modest reserve that keeps yourself for your husband. And quoting Riken is through godliness, not gaudiness. This means that the older a woman gets, the more beautiful she can become. Outwardly, the aging process cannot be reversed. You can't stop it. People try down here in Florida to stop it. 
But even when they try to stop it, you're like, yeah, that's, that's fake, I can tell. <laughs> right? You can't stop it. You can't stop it. Outwardly, the aging process cannot be reversed, but inwardly, a godly woman becomes more and more beautiful all the time. Well, I want to break off now from exposition to draw out some practical implications, some inferences from this text that we considered this morning. <clears throat> First of all, in these verses, we have a very helpful insight into one of the characteristics of the female soul as God has made it, or what uh, Waldron in his lectures on uh, male and female relationships calls the female psyche. Now, what do I mean? Well, these, these verses, together with the rest of the scriptures as a whole, indicate that there does exist in women, in a special manner, a deep-rooted desire to adorn themselves. And it's good to husbands, we need to get that. We understand that. All of us need to understand that. God speaks in Jeremiah 2.32 of the love of a maid for her ornaments and of a bride for her attire. And in the New Testament, in the two key passages where this subject is addressed, this matter of, of, of dressing, how one dresses, this one and the one in 1 Peter, the directives are specifically given to women. Not to men, but to women. Now, now why is that? Why aren't these directives given to men? Well, I don't believe it's for no reason. This tells us something about the way God has made women. Women have this natural God-created desire to adorn themselves, to appear beautiful and attractive and lovely and in good taste. Now, dear women, listen to me. And I've said this already. The desire to appear lovely and attractive is not sinful in and of itself. You'll notice women are not directed to mortify, put to death the desire to adorn themselves in this passage or in any other passage. No, they're expected to adorn themselves. Every woman should indeed be concerned to exhibit a becoming, well-ordered, pleasant appearance in public context. There's, there's nothing wrong with that. That's part of being feminine. But women also need to be aware that as it is with every wholesome, God-given desire that God has created within us, that this natural feminine desire can be perverted by indwelling sin and perverted in sinful directions. And it is perverted in our culture today in at least two major ways. One is to reject it and to deliberately dismiss it and rebel against it. And this is one of the ways we see some women today casting off their femininity. In public settings, they deliberately dress in clothes that are designed to hide their femininity. They make no effort to dress nicely and attractive. They're unhygienic. They gain significant amount, amounts of weight on purpose. Yeah, that's a thing today. On purpose. Deliberately letting yourself go and gaining large amounts of weight as an act of rebellion. They get their hair cut in a butch style commonly associated with men. They deliberately try to hide their femininity and even mock such things as a way of blurring the lines between men and women. 
Also in this category are sincere Christian women who've been confused into thinking that there's something godly about looking as drab and as plain as you possibly can. I trust you see that such an attitude for a Christian woman is unbiblical. It's really a denial of what God has made you as a woman. It's a false, unbiblical asceticism. God nowhere commands women to mortify the desire to have a well-arranged, aesthetically pleasing appearance. He instead tells you to gratify that desire, and he tells you how to do so in a God-honoring and proper way. So this is one of the ways this God-created Feminine desire can be perverted by sin by rejecting it and squelching it and rebelling against it. But there's another way, the opposite extreme. This deeply rooted drive ingrained in the female psyche can be perverted into an idolatrous obsession with your outward appearance. Isn't it interesting that you rarely, if ever, in fact, I've never, but you rarely, if ever, hear about men who are suffering from anorexia or bulimia. These are problems that are almost exclusively found in women. And they stem, you see, from what what is a God-created aspect of femininity becoming perverted by sin into an idolatrous, sinful obsession with your outward appearance. And you young ladies are bombarded with this temptation. Today's women face tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure to conform to some kind of perfect physical ideal and tremendous pressures to present themselves in a a sexually provocative manner and to dress immodestly. Let's be honest, to dress like a prostitute. It comes from the fashion industry. It can be very difficult for a young woman to find clothing in in the average clothing store that's that's stylish without being egregiously immodest. And then the pressure comes from the body industry that promotes the myth. The myth that you can't be happy unless you have a lean and so-called sexy body and that anyone can attain to that perfect body simply through diet and exercise and They pour millions and millions of dollars in promoting this myth. And it's produced a generation of women who are constantly discontent because they're always comparing themselves with the models and the magazines and on TV and in social media. The Christian author Carolyn McCulley, in an article on True Beauty, makes some important observations about the deception that's in the fashion industry. Every woman needs to realize this. She says, did you know that most of the models we see in magazines don't even look like their own pictures? Fashion magazine editors admit that almost every photograph of a model has been digitally altered. So think about it. This alluring model has been toned by her personal trainer, had her hair done by a professional stylist, her face painted by a professional makeup artist and her image captured by a professional photographer under ideal lighting. After this, if the model still doesn't look good enough, she's recast through computer graphics digitally. You see, it's a deception. It's not reality. It's not the real 
world. So there's pressure from the fashion industry, from the body industry. But then there's also the beauty industry, quoting another. The beauty industry, which is big down here in Florida, it feeds on the insecurities of women encouraged by the fashion and body industry by selling breast implants, liposuction, plastic surgeries, collagen injections, drugs, and every kind of lipstick, eyeshadow, shampoo, hair dye, facial cream, soap cleanser, perfume, conditioner, and exfoliant that the commercial mind can imagine. And it's, it's nothing new, really. It's just much more pronounced today and more widespread, but this kind of thing has been going on for centuries. I read some time ago that overweight women in England in the 1600s were bled. There's your crash diet right there. Well, here's another one. Chic women in the 1930s swallowed tapeworms. Ancient Egyptian women used drops of antimony sulfide to make their eyes glitter, eventually destroying their vision. Victorian women got their maids to tight lace them in the corsets, cutting off their oxygen and dis sometimes displacing internal organs in order to achieve an 18-inch waist. Where does this obsession with outward physical appearance come from? Well, you see, my dear friends, it's a, it's a sinful perversion of that which in itself is a natural and proper expression of femininity, the desire to be beautiful. But you see, dear, dear ladies, the Christian woman should desire to be beautiful in a way that glorifies God, in a way that really is beautiful, with a true beauty. You're to desire to that true beauty, which is first and foremost attractive to the God you serve, and truly attractive to a truly godly man, which is the only kind of man that you should ever wish to attract. And this beauty, as we read in 1 Peter 3, 3-4, is not outward, but it's the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, and a godly life that is marked by good works. Such beauty, Peter says, is very precious in the sight of God. But then finally, let me say something to you young single men this morning. What kind of woman are you looking for? Are you looking for a mirage that doesn't exist? Some image of the perfect woman that you've seen in a magazine or in the movies or even worse, on, on some pornographic website that you've been viewing? On your cell phone? Grow up, my friend. Repent. Get your mind out of the gutter. If you can't control what you look at on your cell phone, get a flip phone that has no internet access to it at all. Come on, my friend. Listen, it's better to enter into life without internet access than to go to hell with a cell phone glued to your face. You say to me, Pastor, I want to confess that I've been viewing pornography. And I'm afraid I do it all the time. Okay. I'm glad you're being honest. 
But here's my counsel. Except you repent, you will perish. Repent or you're going to hell, my friend. Sorry to be so blunt, but it's the truth. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 5 and following, Be not deceived. No fornicator or unclean person has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I think sometimes guys confess their problems with pornography because it makes them feel better to confess it. But that's okay. I'm glad you feel better. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to repent? Are you going to pluck out your right eye and cut off your right hand? Are you going to cry to Christ for the grace to mortify that thing and to put it to death? You don't need to see a psychologist. It's not a sickness. It's sin. And that gives hope because sin can be repented of. Sin can be put to death. And the opposite virtues can be cultivated in your life through the power of Jesus Christ, through union with Him. Deal with it. Run to Christ for mercy and forgiveness and repent. Crying to Him, trusting Him for grace to put this sin to death. And then whatever it costs... With his promised help, kill it. You must be, as Owen said, killing sin, or your sin will kill you. And then get your mind out of the gutter and begin to look for a Christian wife who is truly beautiful, who has real beauty. The kind of beauty that never goes away, but only becomes more and more attractive. The beauty of a godly character and a godly life and a love for Jesus Christ. Now sure, when two people get married, it's usually best if they're physically attracted to one another. And there's nothing wrong with physical attraction, but be careful, young men. That your expect, about your expectations when it comes to physical beauty, that they're not too high and unreasonable. Above all else, good works and Christian character are what a man should look for in a woman. When that's absent, you may get married and she may be nice to look at, but you're going to have a miserable life. Good works and Christian character. When a man notices a woman like that, a woman who is devoted to Christ, who has godly wisdom, who loves children, who cares for those in need, a woman who evidences a genuine experiential faith in the Lord Jesus and a love for Christ and for His people and for His Word, when you see a single woman like that, young man, don't let the first thing that you say or that comes to your mind be, oh, but she's not quite as good looking as I wish. She really loves Christ, but she doesn't look as perfect. As that model on television, no, my friend, listen, you aren't so great either. <laughs> Who do you think you are anyway? Right? 
No, when you see a godly single woman in the church like I've described, you should at least be open to the possibility that this might be the one for you. You should say, now, there's a beautiful woman, and her beauty is the kind that will never fade, and it will only get better with age. But of course, as I close this morning, if you're not truly a Christian today, you're not a godly man yourself, a woman like that would never be interested in you anyhow. You say, oh, I really want to have a godly wife. Well, you need to be a godly man. And some of you guys, some of you guys need to grow up, man. Some of these women in the church, the young women in the church, are miles ahead of you spiritually. You're still spending all your time playing video games. And they're reading the Bible. They're studying God's word. They're growing in grace and godliness. And you say, well, I really wish a godly, I could find a godly. Well, become a godly man. But if you're not a Christian today, or you're not a, you're not a godly man who's pursuing, pursuing godliness, a woman like that's not going to be interested in you. In fact, if you're not a Christian this morning... Whether you're a man or a woman, all this stuff I've been saying today may seem like a lot of nonsense to you. You have no desire to honor God with your life. That's not important to you. No real love for Jesus Christ. No love for His people. Your whole life is nothing but a life of selfishness and self-rule and seeking to please yourself. And it's a life that will ultimately lead to unhappiness in misery, and in the end, eternal hell. But my friend, there is a Savior, the Savior for sinners. Paul's just been talking about him in the verses before this. The one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has provided a Savior for sinners, Jesus Christ. And there is hope today. For even the vilest of sinners, Christ Jesus came into the world to save nice people, to save sinners, real sinners, even dark, black, ugly, vicious, vile, dirty, filthy sinners. Christ came to save to rescue them from their sins, to save sinners. He died for sinners to pay the debt that we owe to the justice of God. And he was raised from the dead, testifying to the fact that his sacrifice was sufficient. And he calls out to sinners today, come to me, come to me, and I will save you. Repent. And I will have mercy upon you. Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more against you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to do them. And I will never turn away from you to do you good. What a glorious Savior. What a wonderful salvation. For those of us who already know him, may God help us to live our lives as Christians in a way that honors him including in these very practical ways that Paul sets before us here in his first epistle to Timothy.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you today for the presence of your Holy Spirit with us, for the power of your word. We pray that your word would continue to work powerfully in the hearts of every single one of us. We pray, Father, that much fruit would come from the seed of your word that has been cast out upon every heart here today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.